once you have these understandings that we've been speaking about, all of a sudden the scriptures are abundantly clear. So for example, as we were speaking last, uh, in the last broadcast, from heaven a loud voice says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them. This is after the definition of a, the similarity of a bride adorned for her husband. The dwelling place of God is with man. And then it goes on to say, God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away." Clearly speaking of the end of an epoch, the beginning of another epoch, and in this new epoch, the centerpiece of it as it moves out of the time of judgment of the nations, the destruction of all evil from creation, the remediation of those who were received as sons of God but were disobedient and, and rebellious, as that time ends, all that is left is that which now may be finally and fully um, conditioned to respond to the dwelling of God Himself. Why is that so? Why is that so? Because this is the end of an epoch and the beginning of another epoch. In the beginning of a new epoch, the things to be pursued in that new epoch are distinct from the prior epoch. But the things that characterize and I've said this before recently in one of these teachings, the things that characterize what that epoch was designed to introduce in the new epoch begins to be the character of the end of that age. So as the end of the millennial age comes about, what is being presented is the purpose for the existence of the millennial age to produce the dwelling place of God in its final iteration because in the new epoch that comes after that, the dwelling place of God and man, the meeting place of God and man will constitute both the form and the manner in which God then does whatever He does in the ages to come. The, the finality of that is described simply as, and God will be all in all. What will that look like? It will be the completeness of what we now know 
in limited form of persons walking in the Spirit individually and in some unfinished, incomplete form corporately. What is abundantly clear and very obvious is that God dwelling in the individual, in the Holy Spirit, is to acquaint each individual building block of this great house of God with the fact that the mandate for everyone born of the Spirit, born again and assembled to Christ, on an individual basis, God means to bring everyone to as much of a fullness of how we are to be when we're assembled corporately as can be achieved and understood and experienced individually. And yet these are not such sharp distinctions because part of becoming uh, able to walk in the Spirit as an individual involves and even necessitates a connection to the corporate man. So, but again, it's a matter of emphasis and focus, not a matter of final state and how it looks finally. Finally, it looks like the corporate man. Finally, the individual will have no relevance, no distinct relevance. However, the individual will be part of the corporate whole and part of the majesty of God is how the corporate whole is able to embrace, entertain, function under His presence and His rule in a way that depicts the harmony and peace within the diversities of the nature of God. What do I mean by the diversities, plural, of the nature of God? Because the nature of God is that of spirit, which is His essential person, spirit, Father, which is the final statement of the love of God, and Son, which is the final statement of the acceptance of man into the person of God, displaying the humility of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Spirit, Father, and Son, Holy Spirit, Father, and Son, are descriptors of different different realities associated with the person of God. Spirit is the complete reality. Spirit contains every reference to His wisdom, His power, His understanding, His knowledge, His counsel, His rule, Spirit. Father is the full encompassing of His love, patience, His kindness, His gentleness, His goodness, the investment of His faith, the investment of His hope, 
how his awesome economy serves the purposes of his love. All of that and more is to be discovered in the manifestation of God as Father. His obedience, his trust, his faith, how he perfectly models the manner of delegation of authority, functioning of authority, reliance upon his own divine nature and so on. All of that and more have to do with the manifestation of God as Son. So in the totality of all of that, God dwells with his people to produce a final iteration and gives us a picture of what happens when God is all of who God is in all of the corporate man, all in all. So here it speaks of it with a hint of a separateness. God will dwell with them, He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. I might add here as it regards His people, a people for His possession, people for His, that He may possess absolutely. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. In short, the mandate demanded by the personality and personhood of God Himself will characterize the way God dwells among His people and conform His people to these final expressions that are related to God's original intent to have a person, a man, in His image and in His likeness. That's what you're looking at here when he talks about the New Jerusalem. If you think of the New Jerusalem as just a city in which people may live in a different way, you're missing the point entirely. You're missing, that is, that is a linear perspective informed by our present reality, not by what is true and what is to come. What is true is what is to come and what is true when it comes, will upgrade our understanding accordingly and nothing of the present ought be relied upon to definitively tell us what, the, what that will look like because now we know in part. And to the extent that we speak about these things, it's even then only in part. When the perfect comes, it overshadows by way of replacing that which is partial. So certain things to note about the dwelling place of God and man and the resulting environment. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death. Why? Because the second death has swallowed up all those who are subject to it and man will no more die. 
the body we will be given upon the resurrection and upon the return of the Lord is one that will not, cannot die because it's not a body for the earth exclusively although it will function on the earth within the environments of the new earth but it is one that is perfectly compatible with the nature of being which is spirit. Spirit together with redeemed soul will be assigned a body. Now that body, that body will not be subject to pain, suffering, death, sorrow, crying, those things because all those things were necessary in this life to events that we were learning obedience. All present now will be characterized by perfect obedience, not a shadow of turning from either the nature of God or the ways of God because we will have been conformed to the image and likeness of God in fulfillment of the original mandate. So it asks the question now, why did God create man stating that his intent was to have a man in his image and likeness? That is only partially the answer of the why. Image and likeness are partially answers to the why. Why did God create man? That God might have a man in his image and likeness. Why? that that man, that man being a spiritual man, that man is qualified to carry the glory of God. How will that, that man carry the glory of God? That man will carry the glory of God by being conformed to the likeness of Christ who never disobeyed God and always did exactly what he saw the Father doing. Such a man the Father loves and shows whatever the Father is doing. And such a man in the image and likeness of God is the one qualified to put the nature of God on display in the earth. That is in fact the showing of the glory of God. How did Jesus put it in John 17? That they might love one another in the fashion in, and in which fashion you love me and I love you, that they might love one another with you in me, I in you, us in them, that you might bring them to that, that the world may believe that you sent me and that you've loved them as you've loved me. Herein is my Father glorified, he said. This is the fruit, the ultimate fruit to be born. When that occurs, the body in which this will be manifested in this level of finality, I keep reminding you, that there are iterations of this truth all along the arc of this journey. 
and ultimately there's a final reality to it. When this is accomplished, part of the result is that no one living then and everyone living then will have passed from death to life. No one then will die. No one then will be full of sorrow. There will be no need for us to cry over disappointments and loss. No. There won't be the pain of separation, dying, loss, sickness, those things. There will not be. They're the former things that passed away when the old earth passed away and even as the old heavens passed away and what remains of the old heavens is now in the earth but in a new earth in a different form to accommodate, to support, to sustain, to empower that which is the intentions of God now newly revealed. So verse 5 makes perfect sense. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In short, this is a new order. Satan doesn't live in it, has no part in it, wickedness, evil, sin, no part in it. Now if you invest in this life, in things that are wicked, evil and sinful, neither will you have a part in it nor will there be a part for you in it. So it goes on to say the next thing, I will give to him, well first write for these words are faithful and true, I'll read the part, comment and come back. He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And again it states, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. You note that? I will be, he who overcomes uh, shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Not my sons, my son the corporate Christ, the body of Christ, the one who inherits all that the Father has that is available in Christ. This is the final summation of all these things. And then he says, but the cowardly, that would be those who didn't overcome, they couldn't go the distance, Well, they could have but they chose not to. They didn't go the distance because they were unbelieving. Their nature never changed from the corruptible and the abominable, from murderers, sexually moral people, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. They're not around anymore. Where are they? 
the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, the second death. I was thinking about this as I was preparing and how commonplace it is for the culture of the quote-unquote the hookup culture is today. Meeting for the purpose of having sex with no thought of commitment. You know, these definitions, the sexually moral, are popular today and made to look like the norm. They're not. If you sleep with anyone with whom you're not married, this is what is meant by sexually immoral. Not just immoral, that may have to do with the way you deal with business. You may be moral in the sense that you're not adhering, you choose not to adhere to the biblical definition of how you deal with other people. This isn't that. Of course, that, that may be covered by the abominable. This is about specifically the sexually immoral. I'm focusing on that because of late I've just been inundated with the social condition of how sexual immorality has come to be commonplace in the church or in church. There's this one large evangelical church with, whose main attraction was its singles group and it became a meat market. As far as I know it still is where the hookup culture largely was generated out of a church context. And no one thought too much of it because in the backs of everybody's minds maybe they would get married eventually. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> when I read what the Bible says and I look at how people view things and what they do, I'm astonished at the degree to which people have departed from the faith. It says, the cowardly, that's those who did not overcome, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the faithless, the abominable, that means you depart, persons departed from the standards of truth, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers. It's not a cool thing to dabble in the occult. And, and Christian uh, occultism has, 
has made quite an inroad into modern, the modern psychological church. Idolaters, people who create their own versions of God and cannot be taught the ways of the true God. That's idolatry. Family is an idolatry. A God after the fashion of family idolatry often takes the form of specific emphasis. This is not to preclude teaching upon, but where the emphasis becomes, the marketing emphasis becomes that of the family, first family church of XYZ. People figured out that the way to uh, get the parents to come was to focus on bringing the children in. And these had the friendly social naming of First Family Church. In other words, like First Baptist Church, we're the first to think up of the idea. That's idolaters. I'm not saying that the family is not important. I am saying the family is not the most important. That's what I'm saying. And if you make the mistake of thinking that somehow family and family issues are the primary concerns of the church, then you've made an idol out of family. All liars. I'm astonished, frankly, at the casual ease with which people who say they're believers lie. Casually, I mean, if a, if a shading of a, of a matter serves the promotion of a point of view that is false, or if withholding certain things that are true and only telling those portions that are true that will prove your point, that is a lying spirit. The spirit of truth requires you to tell everything that is true so that the person to whom you're telling these things is not deceived. Now, they're not even around at this time. They have been assigned a place in the lake of fire, which is the second death. He's speaking about what happens at the end of the millennium after, after people who claim that they are the Lord's people but are still unbelieving, cowardly, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral and so on, have been given the chance to submit those portions of their souls to the rule of the Spirit. And you may say, well, surely anyone who kills people can't go to heaven when they die. Let me, let me expand the definition of murder to include what Jesus said murder is. You hate your brother without cause. 
let me expand this version of sexually immoral to include what he said. You look on a woman to lust after her. These are not uncommon conditions among people who say they are believers. The millennium will give the chance by strict obedience for the final cures and the expunging of this taint, but whoever insists on this taint as being a form and fashion in which they may live despite what the Lord has said will have the confrontation that the Lord has said will occur. They they do not live in this epoch. They, They are removed, banished, isolated. No place is found for them. Now then, why does he say, Behold, I make all things new, and for these words are true and faithful. And finally, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. When he says, when he says these things are true, faithful and true, it is the same as when he declares, Verily, verily, I say unto you. In short, he's telling us this is so reliable that only a fool would doubt it. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, beginning there is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E, it's from the word akomai, which means the first in rank, the first in place. So he's saying, I'm declaring these things to you from my position of the first in rank. And the end, he said, I'm the beginning and the end. So what he means by Alpha and Omega is, I am beginning and end. So you are to understand the reference to these words in the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega, by the definition, beginning and end. Beginning is the word arche, which is the same as the term firstborn, because it defines rank. It defines the first of the order, meaning the preeminent one within the order. So he's speaking as the living God and he's saying, I am the first of the order. So there's none who may speak these things with any authority greater than the one with which I'm speaking. And then the end, the word end here is the word teleos, T-E-L-O-S, telos. And that means the final iteration, the beginning, the priority of rank, and the thing fully brought forth, the teleos. 
the beginning and the end. He's the, he is the first in rank, so he possesses the greatest authority to speak these things, and he's the last. He is the consummation, the full and final expression of the thing. And so when he says, I'm Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, he's saying, what I am saying to you cannot be in controversy. These are faithful, reliable sayings. And then he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life to him who thirsts. So we will talk about the fountain of the water of life when we come back to unpack more of all these pieces that he's putting in place to define with certainty the life that we will live and the form in which we will live that life at the end of this epoch called the millennium. That is when there will be announcement of the bride, the Lamb's wife, in her final revealing of glory. She's present now, ruling and reigning, but she will be revealed in her final state. And that's what we want to talk about. And Sam Solon, continue with me in this most marvelous of studies. Um, I was saying to Bill Heggie the other, uh, not long ago, I'm glad that I actually undertook the study of the book of Revelation, although at first it seemed so forbidding. But the more I've gotten into it, and now as I come close to the end of the study, what I'm seeing is it was the perfect capstone to bring together all the pieces that I have known and understood been given by revelation and insight over the many years, the decades of walking with God and studying the scriptures, it quite literally pulls it all together for me. I am the greatest recipient and beneficiary of this grace of having studied with you the book of Revelation. And my hope is that even as we come into the final understandings, and summations of it in what's left of the 21st chapter and then the final chapter, the 22nd, that so much will have been pulled together for you from all throughout the scriptures and pulled together in a form that allowed you to see how we started with iterations of things, primarily emphasizing the natural but moving through the stages of transition, like the stages of growth of a son of God from infancy to maturity, so through the stages of transition, we're able to learn and understand as we grew up and became more mature, what were the greater implications of the things once spoken and once existing merely as types and shadows that became the reality and become the continuing, prevailing and profound reality, not only as the Lord returns, 
but all the things that happen when His return, as it does, ushers in that age that is to come next. So there's the millennium and there's an age after the millennium and we're being introduced to that now, even now, from the study of the book of Revelation. And Sam Solon, what an awesome thing that our eyes have been allowed and our ears permitted to hear and to see the glory of the appearing of the Lord in these forms never before revealed or experienced in creation. We should have no fear whatsoever of the coming ages and what lies beyond our time. should have absolutely no fear because we'll move right into these greater upgrades of the things we now know, believe and hold firmly to. That's actually said, you know, at the end of the book of Revelation where it says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, for they shall have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And then, if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part out of the book of life and from the holy city and from those things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'm Sam Solon and I'll see you in the continuing study. We're drawing to the close of it. Obviously, you won't want to miss any of it. See you then. Bye.